the number one principle I always try and go back to is how can we grow through adding value and demonstrating value? And so really, you know, that, that actually starts with product. When you're a subscription business or a SaaS business, it starts with the quality of your product. Like I think SaaS is beautiful because it's a really pure value exchange between customer and company. Um, as long as a customer is receiving what they deem to be enough value, they'll continue to pay for your product. And so it creates this really great incentivization structure for businesses to solve real problems for users and continue to improve the product over time and demonstrate that value. And so both sides are win-win. I think it's a, it's a really great business model from that point of view. And so one of the ways we look at continuing growing is how can we solve more customer problems? And that really starts with diving into customer research. Even our churn feedback, for example, like one, one tactical thing we do is we have an exit survey when somebody cancels Canva Pro and we just you know ask them, um, uh, what are canceling and is there anything we could uh, be doing better to you know change their mind in future and that becomes a really rich uh, qualitative source of uh, feedback and you know you can categorize that and group it and start to see some trend, trends there I think one thing one piece of advice I think for anybody trying to do uh, SaaS growth is that the number one uh, piece of Turn feedback you will always get is price uh, <laughs> but that just means to a lot of people I'm not getting enough value um, or I don't deem myself to be getting enough value in return for what I'm paying. And so that can mean a, very, uh, a lot of different things to a lot of different people, depending on socioeconomic status, et cetera. But from that churn feedback, you get a lot of really, really great ideas. And so like a really great example of one this year that we um, got from our churn feedback was Canva used to uh, have free content, premium content, and then paid content. And so we had two tiers of uh, product, but three tiers of content. And so what that meant was if you upgraded to Canva Pro, there was still some content that you paid for. Um, and that was due to some sort of some legacy uh, contributor royalty kind of like mm -hmm. photography type model world that we initially built Canva into where people who submitted content into Canva got paid royalties. Um, and we realized people are, this is actually pain in the ass for a lot of people. They're upgrading Canva Pro. They expect to, you know, get the Netflix treatment, pay one price, get unlimited content. Mm -hmm. And they're not getting that. Um, and this seems to be a large enough pain point that it's worth solving. You're listening to the Growth Manifesto podcast, a Zoom video series brought to you by Web Profits, a digital growth consultancy that helps global and national businesses attract, acquire and retain customers through digital marketing. This episode is a discussion with Dave Burson, Head of Product, Growth, and Monetization at Canva, where we get into the weeds on how Canva drives growth for their paid subscription product, Canva Pro. So let's get into it. So today we're talking with the Head of Growth and Monetization at Canva, which is a pretty big title. His name is Dave Burson, and you've been with Canva for about three years. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Just a little bit over three years now. Just, yeah, that's a pretty big title to have, yeah? It's product growth and monetization at Canva. So what is it that you actually like, do there? Um, yeah, I guess I wear a fair few hats. And yeah, that title probably represents that. But um, I suppose I initially come from more of a product background. And we can probably chat about that a bit later. That's what I was originally hired at Canva to do. But these days, uh, I look after the Canva Pro group at Canva. And so Canva is structured into uh, groups, product groups, I guess, you know, to uh, they sort of map to business units at other companies. Um, 
and the group lead role at Canva sort of each group has a, has a group lead. And, and I guess that also maps to maybe more of a, a sort of GM set of responsibilities um, in external language. Um, my role is, you know, ultimately to, to put it really simply is to grow the number of happy paying Canva pro customers we have. And so we do that through, you know, firstly building a really valuable product that people and uh, that solves problems for people and that they're happy to pay for. And then obviously distributing that um, and making people aware of all the value that we have on offering the Canva Pro product through good marketing. And then also, you know, we, we run on top of a freemium business model. And so building in sustainable growth loops within our products to um, try and move as many of our users from the free tier to the paid tier as possible over time. Uh, and so, yeah, I guess that encompasses product growth, marketing, um, operations, and then, you know, sort of, I guess, everything in between people and hiring. So a- anything it really takes to make the group successful. And I guess the frame of the group is about uh, 60 people now. Um, we've been growing a lot at Canva recently. So 60 people inside of the growth team or 60 people inside of the Canva Pro team? Uh, 60 people inside of the Canva Pro group, yeah. But we work Canva- very collaboratively with so many other people from around the business. We have a, a, mark, a centralized marketing group um, and we work with um, a bunch of the other product groups who contribute to the free product, the pro product. And um, yeah, it's, it's a generally a very collaborative effort to improve the Canva products um, week to week and, and to grow it. Yeah, right. That's cool. And so, and I want to jump into actually how the teams are structured like a little bit and then how the teams actually communicate with each other because it sounds like it's a pretty big operation um in terms of something that on the front end just looks so simple right and so we'll get to that too but i mean of course how did you get into canva like, of course basically like you started in product is that right uh yeah so i was originally hired at canva to be a product manager i think i might have been the first person that was actually hired to be a product manager at canva of course we mm-hmm. had were doing the role of product managers at Canva. I think we had just never actually gone out and tried to hire one before. People had organically grown into that role. You know, yep. Canva was pretty successful, already a pretty successful place when I joined. So it was people already doing a very good job of that. Um, but I came in as a product manager, originally hired to uh, essentially look after the Canva for Work product as we, uh, as it used to be known. We've since rebranded to Canva Pro. Um, so you can use those interchangeably. Um, yeah, sure. So that's how I initially landed at Canva. Yeah, so to, to be the, the growth product manager for the Canva for Work product. Um, yeah. yeah, cool. And so then you've spent the last three years now, and so now like you head up the team. Is that right? For Canva Pro? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, I joined at a really interesting time in, in sort of Canva's story. Uh, when I interviewed Canva was, um, or when I joined, Canva was sort of in the middle of rewriting the entire front end of the product. Uh, and this was actually something that motivated me to join Canva because I think anybody who um, has ever worked at a, a sort of tech company knows uh, the horrors of old legacy code that you need to rip apart and rewrite. And um, very few companies ever have the balls to do it. Um, mm-hmm. so it was a real, I think, statement of intent from Canva at that point in their sort of in, in our development to say, do you know what, we're going to put down all our tools, stop shipping new features, and we're just going to put all our engineering resources on rewriting this, uh, rewriting the front end of our product as quickly as we can. Yeah. Uh, because that is really setting the platform for the next, you know, sort of 10, 20 years, hopefully, of scaling. Mm-hmm. Previously, you know, we were just layering on top of a, 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 a code base that was built, I think, from the early prototype of Canva, just kept becoming more and more things. And 
it just got to a point where it was becoming actually very slow to build new features and we couldn't actually move fast and we couldn't hire more engineers. So I joined in the middle of that project and um, I actually helped out on that for the first few months, just sort of uh, trying to do whatever I could be, I could to be useful uh, because I think we had realized after we kicked that off that uh, it was a lot bigger than we thought it was going to be. And I think... <laughs> Isn't that everything in tech? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's a sim. I've never met anyone who's gone through a rewrite project and it's been uh, exactly the same size as they originally estimated. So, uh, so in between, actually, I think in between me interviewing and, and starting, um, I think Mel and Cliff went away and said, actually, you know what? we're actually going to even stop working on Canva for work. We're just going to put everybody onto making this rewrite happen as quickly as possible. And so I came in and helped out on that for a few months. But uh, a couple of months later, as that sort of started to see the light of day and things were looking pretty good and we're coming out the other side of it, I remember having a conversation with Cliff and he said, right, we've put all this time and energy and, and investment into rewriting the product. Um, our users haven't seen new features for uh, quite a long time. We now need to start turning all this work into value for our users and the company. So I want you to go and do what you are originally hired to do, which is start growing Canva for work. So I said, cool, give me a, a designer and an engineer and we'll start figuring some stuff out. And um, yeah, I went away and uh, we just started, you know, doing all the really obvious stuff. There was a lot of so much low hanging fruit. Um, um, I guess for those who may not be familiar with the different, like the freemium business model, you know, you have a free tier and always free tier. Uh, and how you grow revenue is that you try to convert some of those free users into paying subscribed users in our case. Um, yeah. And so some of that low hanging fruit looked like just things like, you know, some of our premium features, our users didn't know about them because they weren't revealed anywhere in the product. And that's a, you know, a really kind of one-on-one growth loop you build into <laughs> a, a freemium subscription product is you, uh, I guess, display the premium feature that you have somewhere in the product, you know, usually in the user flow where the user will interact with it and where the user can see the potential value of that feature. And you say, hey, upgrade to Canva Pro, get a free 30-day trial, and you get to use this feature, and here's all the great stuff it does for you. It was just a bunch of that missing. So we just started to kind of, you know, layer them in, get these incremental growth wins. Uh, and yeah, we built up from there. We added a few more engineers, grew the team blah, 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 three years later, here we are with 60 people and kind of doing the full range of uh, stuff across the Canva Pro product now, including product and a bunch of other things. Yeah, right. So obviously, you know what you're talking about and obviously you're pretty good at the performance side of things um, because just correct me if I'm wrong, but you started off with just the three of you and now it's 60. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Me, Ian, and an engineer called Rowdy were the, were the first <laughs> to, to kick it off for a couple of months. And um, yeah, we just built up from there as soon as we could kind of, you know, demonstrate some wins. We added a few more people in. And it was really just at the time, it was super exciting because there was opportunity everywhere. It was super under-optimized. In many ways, it still is very under-optimized. I think, you know, there's always more to be done. Uh, one of the things we quickly realized, though, as well, is that, you know, when you're trying to grow a subscription business, uh, the back end is just as important as the front end. And by that, I mean payments and subscription infrastructure. So we had a little old billing team of just uh, three engineers at the time uh, who were sort of looking after everything to do with making money at Canva. And we were, you know, we were at that point, we already had, I think, about 200,000 paying customers. So um, it was no small feat, but we quickly realized that um, to do the type of sort of high velocity, high impact growth work, we really needed to beef out that billing team as well and uh, be able to do things like 
you know, an example of stuff we like to experiment with uh, and did experiment with back then was just even the length of the trial. What's the optimal trial length for uh, driving conversion, getting people in to try the pro product, but not being too long such that, you know, their intent drops off, uh, things like that. And that, that, a lot of that happens on the back end as well. So you need to build sort of that growth muscle um, into the engineering culture in uh, the back end as well as, as, as the front end as well. And how did you do that? Because obviously it's like a muscle, right? It has to be built over time and consistency. Yeah. So what was kind of some of the things which you did, you know, to change the team's thinking in terms yeah, of growth? It's really interesting. I've actually been thinking a lot about this recently as we sort of, you know, grow Canva. It's over a thousand people now and we're trying to create sort of, I guess, repeatable, scalable growth processes right across the business and ensure that all of the sort of 14 or 15 product groups are doing high quality growth work at Canva. One thing that I think is often overlooked is that engineering growth culture because growth engineering is actually quite different to product engineering. Product engineering is a lot of greenfield projects, you know, going away and writing a design doc for maybe, you know, weeks or months and um, then going away and building the thing for weeks or months. And it's, and it, it's super important and valuable work, but, you know, growth is the complete other end of the spectrum. A lot of the things you try won't work. A lot of the work you do will be thrown away, thrown in the bin, it'll be scrapped. It's experiments, you know, by their nature are experimental and they fail. And so that actually shifts engineering culture completely on its head. You have to, um, you know, get comfortable with doing just enough engineering and moving fast. Like what's the smallest piece of code we can ship to validate this direction and then if that has some success signals out of it we can then go away and figure out how to productize it um, and it's not just about sort of getting individuals comfortable with that it's actually about getting your organization comfortable with that as well I think you know when you have a CTO and an engineering culture and a, a, a way of doing things um, especially a really high bar for how you do things like Canva does um, that can often kind of cause some friction that you're getting in and you're actually shipping some pretty hacky code to production. And mm -hmm. so it just requires sort of slowly uh, bringing everyone on that journey together, which is like what we're trying to do is find uh, ways of growing the product. And the minute we do that, we, you know, we have this mutual agreement and a shared understanding that we will then go away and, you know, productize things um, exactly the way they should be. Um, so that's, that's just, yeah, one little hurdle we had to overcome with, growth engineering. But I guess the, the other thing is just moving fast um, is just how can we ship, you know, a, a few more experiments every week or every month because that growth compounds, those learnings compound. Even if you don't get a winning experiment, the learnings out of that usually, you know, for every experiment you run, you usually get about four or five more ideas that fall out the bottom of it based on the data and the learnings you've gotten as well. Mm -hmm. so, so speed is really, really key. And um, yeah, we really place an emphasis on, in those early days of just trying to move fast, trying to ship as many quick wins as we could, build momentum, build learnings, build a really strong backlog of hypotheses uh, for our next sets of experiments. And um, yeah, so I think that that speed was really important then. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've just taken so many notes and so many places that, that I want to take this conversation. Um, and I'm trying to make sure that there's like a structured conversation <laughs> for the listeners, right? And so... I am getting a little bit excited with all the things that like, like, like I just heard uh, from you, but let's, um, let's stick with the team first because then there's so many kind of a tactical things, which I want to speak about in terms of say, for example, the churn rates and the testing kind of approach and like kind of experiments and processes and all that type of jazz. Um, um, but first, like in terms of like scaling a team that quickly, 
from three to sixteen, three, uh, yeah, from three to sixteen, three years. What were some of the things that you did to ensure that the team was kind of as effective and efficient as possible? Um, it's a really good question. I think one thing that Canva has always done well, and I suppose I've sort of learned and inherited through that is just having really tight lean squads. Um, and so even on the product side, as well as the growth side, we tend to have quite small um, lean growth squads that have a clear vision and mission and direction and, and purpose. Um, and so we've sort of started out by just having one team, this Canva Pro or Canva Forward growth team. And uh, the mission in those early days was just how can we grow the number of pro trials? Uh, we were lean. And so the metric that's always uh, easiest to move and quickest to move when you're lean is trials because it's a lot of sort of top of funnel, uh, front end only type stuff. Um, you know, as you get further down the subscription funnel to churn and stuff like that, the, the things that tend to move the, move the needle on voluntary churn and delinquent churn tend to be like bigger, more involved projects like um, huge new feature launches or massive payment infrastructure upgrades uh, that increase the quality of your payments. And so when you just have a front end or a designer and, and, and me with my spreadsheets, you, uh, you tend to just focus on, right, well, how can we maybe, as I mentioned earlier, like add a new path mm -hmm. within the product that's pretty quick. As we scaled up, um, yeah, just making sure that the teams we were creating had a real purpose and, and, and a really clear, um, I think, North Star. So at the second team we added on to the group was this billing team. And so that team had a number of existing, like pretty heavy responsibilities, keep Canva's billing infrastructure up and make sure all our payments go through. And, uh, and like that in its own is a very, um, very noble role, but we also wanted to add on a growth component. So we had to obviously look at that team and the, the amount of streams of work and, you know, just do some basic sort of capacity planning. Uh, and we quickly realized this team needs to be, you know, without splitting the atom, this team needs to be like, three times the size as quickly as mm -hmm. you can get there. Well, just, let's just quickly just talk about like the growth squads. I liked lean squads, right? Like how large is the ideal size of a lean squad, lean growth squad? Oh God, there's a lot. Have you figured that out yet? Or is it still an internal pull and push and pull, you know, just based on capacity? You know, I think in the old world, pre COVID, it's the amount of people that can get in a small meeting room and have a productive chat, right? There's, sort of five or six plus or minus a few maybe but um really if a team is i guess juggling more than two or three streams of work you probably need to divide that team because if there's more than two or three streams of important work um those streams of important work are the exact basis around which you form teams um because there's something important worth doing and owning and pushing forward uh, and yeah, that billing team, I think was an example of that, you know, it became like, keep the lights on, then it became keep the lights on plus do growth, <laughs> keep, keep the lights on plus do growth, plus expand internationally with new payment methods, um, then keep the lights on plus do growth, plus new payment methods, plus, uh, deal with like chargebacks and refunds and disputes. And so, um, that is now like zooming forward to today, for example, just to sort of illustrate that growth journey that set of teams is now a subgroup within Canva Pro of five teams and about 25 people alone. And so looking after um, sort of five, five or six really key pillars of um, building related work at Canva. Okay. Um, so then like, like in terms of your team then of 60, is that like 10 squads or seven to 10 squads? Is that kind of like how 
the team is structured? Yeah, it's uh, it's actually three subgroups, uh, three. and then within the subgroups collectively, I think there's fourteen teams. Interesting, interesting. Um, and how like, is the communication actually kind of managed? Because that's a lot of teams. That's a lot of comms. Yeah, like so what are kind of some of the things which you know, happen there to kind of just ensure that you know what's going on and that like, everybody like, like is going in the right kind of direction? It's a great question. Um, and it's something I think about all the time. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I guess to go back to your question, how do we um, communicate? Canva's always placed a really, really high value on like its culture of sort of open communication and just even just like fun little culture building um, ceremonies. Uh, going back to when we were all just on one floor, the whole company it was like you know, 150 people. We used to get together for Friday show and tells where pretty much everybody working on product and growth could just get up at the end of the week on a Friday at 4 p.m. with a beer and just show what they've been working on for the week. So that was just a great way of really keeping that context flowing around the business. Like, oh, you know, we're getting a bit bigger and I don't necessarily know what's happening over in that team. You know, Friday, come for a beer, chat with somebody, see what's actually happening mm -hmm. that way. And it, so it builds culture and it ensures context is swirling around as well. Um, we also have a big uh, sort of... Well, it's a thousand people now though. So how do you do it now? Because before it was 150. Now it's like seven times the size. <laughs> yeah. We, how do you do it now? We do it within the group. So we've kept the culture and the tradition going. So now every every second Friday within the Canva Pro group, we have a, we have a show and tell where everybody's encouraged to kind of just get up and... Um, you know, demo what they've been working on for the last couple of weeks or share any interesting context. Somebody from the data team might share a piece of interesting research that they've done recently, or one of our user researchers might share a piece of interesting research that they've done recently. Um, so that's sort of like informal kind of communication, but we obviously have the more formal uh, sort of updates. We tried to put together Canva plans in, in seasons. So it's, it's kind of like quarters, but just you know, on, on the seasons effectively. Uh, it's just something quirky, I think, that stayed with the company that we, we did for a bit of fun uh, in the early days. And actually, everybody really enjoyed it. And we used to have like sort of themed seasonal parties where we'd have an all-hands day. Everybody would present their progress from the last three months, their progress for the next three months, and then have a bit of a party afterwards. So it was great. So we've stuck with that. Um, so on a seasonal basis, um, our groups now will present at the end of the season the progress they've made that season and what they plan to do for the next season and follow that up with some written communications as well. So that means that around the thousand person organization, there's you know really good robust updates going around every every three months or so. Um, yeah, and then within the week, within the group, I, I'd like to just um, encourage over communication, especially from the sort of the leads as well, who tend to be hubs of context and, and be at the center of everything where um, to make sure that they're, especially in this new asynchronous world, just anything interesting or that they think other people could benefit from, just sending out little updates on our Slack channel, um, writing a confluence page and sharing it around, mm -hmm. uh, and really you know, constantly uh, encouraging that over communication to um, just ensure stuff is swirling around. And I think it's never been more important um, to asynchronously communicate updates, nuggets of goals, um, mm. where everybody is sort of benefiting from those learnings. So... You use uh, Slack and Atlassian. Yeah, that's basically the tools internally to, to we use a lot kind of, of ensure the communication. A lot of oh, yeah, we use Canva a lot. Like Canva is obviously um, a, a brilliant communications tool, and it's one of the strongest use cases our customers internally. Use. Yeah, Canva presentations. We've actually got a great new feature now called uh, 
video presentations or recording okay. presentations. And so you could always create amazing looking presentations inside of Canva, but now you can actually record yourself narrating them as well. So it's really great for asynchronous communication. I think, um, I like Loom, is that kind of like yeah, exactly. that style thing? Yeah, okay, cool. So people are using talking presentations now to you know, communicate an idea or a direction or, or a pitch deck sort of asynchronously now that we're, you know, with the borders closed and we've sort of hired a lot of our, um, a lot of our staff have come from overseas, um, you know, with the nature of the, the tech talent pool in, in Australia, I think right. a lot of people are coming from overseas. And so we've hired a lot of people in the last six months since, since um, the pandemic began who have began overseas. And uh, for us, it's been a bit of a shift because Canva's always been a really indie office um, type, uh, type of company. And um, we've created a lot of like really effective systems and, and sort of rhythms around that. But we've had to adjust pretty quickly. Um, and so we've got people um, in the Canva Pro team. We've got somebody in San Fran. We've got somebody in South Africa. We've got somebody in Vietnam now. And so trying to um, you know just be mindful and inclusive of them with all of the um, updates we're sending around. So we're finding asynchronous Canva decks, recorded presentations. And then on top of that, Slack and Atlassian and, and a bit of Google Docs as well. And a bigger group. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, cool. Thanks so much for sharing about the team stuff because I know that's super interesting, for, um, especially for people who manage teams because I know that, you know, like for the Canva, its valuation compared to three years ago is like, has it tripled or has it just doubled? I think it's tripled. It was 3.2 billion in 2017 and now it's 6 billion like US or something as of the last raise, is that right? Or the 8 billion? There's so many billions now. I don't even know <laughs> which ones to go with. Um, yeah, I think I, when I, when I joined, um, I think it was just before a 1 billion round. And yeah, the last round was valued at 6 billion US. Yeah. So that kind of growth comes with a lot of pressure, right? And so your um, role is pretty much well it's one of the most important roles because it's the revenue producer right and so the things that we're about to speak about you guys are kind of extremely quick and extremely um i guess agile in terms of the speed of the growth because i'm sure the pressure is very very high to maintain a certain trajectory right that's what the investors want so that comes to you and so the pressure is extremely high to win a lot more than to lose on the test which you run, right? Like, and so having like an above average success rate is part of the role, right? So how do you ensure that, that above average success rate in terms of the features or the tests or the hypotheses that are being kind of tested out there? Um, I think the number one principle I always try and go back to is how can we grow through adding value and demonstrating value and so really you know that, that actually starts with product when you're a subscription business or a SaaS business it starts with the quality of your product like I think SaaS is beautiful because it's a really pure value exchange between customer and company um, as long as a customer is receiving what they deem to be enough value they'll continue to pay for your product and so it creates this really great incentivization structure for businesses to 
solve real problems for users and continue to improve the product over time and demonstrate that value. And so both sides are win-win. I think it's a, it's a really great business model from that point of view. And so one of the ways we look at continuing growing is how can we solve more customer problems? And that really starts with diving into customer research. Even our churn feedback, for example, like one, one tactical thing we do is we have an exit survey when somebody cancels Canva Pro and we just you know ask them, um, uh, what are canceling and is there anything we could uh, be doing better to you know change their mind in future and that becomes a really rich uh, qualitative source of uh, feedback and you know you can categorize that and group it and start to see some trend, trends there I think one thing one piece of advice I think for anybody trying to do uh, SaaS growth is that the number one uh, piece of Turn feedback you will always get is price um, <laughs> but that just means to a lot of people I'm not getting enough value um, or I don't deem myself to be getting enough value in return for what I'm paying. And so that can mean a, very, uh, a lot of different things to a lot of different people, depending on socioeconomic status, et cetera. But from that churn feedback, you get a lot of really, really great ideas. And so like a really great example of one this year that we um, got from our churn feedback was Canva used to uh, have free content, premium content, and then paid content. And so we had two tiers of uh, product, but three tiers of content. And so what that meant was if you upgraded to Canva Pro, there was still some content that you paid for. Um, and that was due to some, sort of some legacy uh, contributor royalty kind of like mm -hmm. photography type model world that we initially built Canva into where people who submitted content into Canva got paid royalties. Um, and we realized people are, this is actually pain in the ass for a lot of people. They're upgrading Canva Pro. They expect to, you know, get the Netflix treatment, pay one price, get unlimited content. Mm -hmm. And they're not getting that. Um, and this seems to be a large enough pain point that it's worth solving. So we went away and um, sort of blah, 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 solved a few problems, figured out how we could get a ton of content in and, and just solve this um, royalty problem once and for all. Uh, and, and so we solved that. We put a new uh, model in behind the scenes. But we went and we brought this change to market with a big go-to-market campaign. Um, we called it Pro Unlimited internally. It's still Canva Pro. Uh, mm -hmm. But essentially, all your content, 75 million uh, images, videos, illustrations, uh, every piece of content imaginable available in Canva Pro for one relatively cheap price at $13 a month. Uh, and it was such a step change in growth for us. Uh, once people seen that amount of value, um, like I think to give a relative comparison for similar stock photography subscriptions from um, other stock providers, you might be paying hundred dollars plus US USD per month. Mm. Uh, and, and they often come with limits around the amount of um, downloads you can uh, mm. make each month. And so you're just getting the 75 million uh, collection of content for this, you know, no price change for the same great price for Camp Pro. So that was just a really, really huge, huge growth campaign for us. We acquired a ton of trials. We started to notice our churn, um, you know, measurably improve as well. Mm. Uh, or really, really seeing this value step change. And I think it was probably the biggest uh, value improvement for Canva Pro we had made in quite some time. So um, that's just an example of, um, you know, I, I think that the biggest growth step changes you will ever make are the ones where you add more value and, and demonstrate more value to your users rather than like, you know, shaving around the margins and like, you know, constricting value or taking it away or putting usage limits. Um, ultimately, if you're playing a long game, I think that's what will win you really, really loyal, uh, loving customers. Can people just subscribe just 
to get the photo library? Yeah, people can come and if people just want to sort of use the content in Canva, that's that's a, that's a very valid way of using Canva. You know, you can create a design, add images onto it, um, and use it that way. But I think once people start sort of using Canva and playing around with the product and uh, experiencing, you know, what they can actually achieve with it, they they realize it's so much more and there's so much more they can do, and it, and it can really be a super valuable tool for them. Uh, whether they're marketers or internal communicators or, or mm -hmm. whatever, they'll, um, that they'll experience that sort of value pretty quickly and um, they'll stay for all the rest. Yeah, sure. That's fantastic. And just coming back to the value part, like in the beginning, you needed to add a lot more value um, to people um, without having all of the data yet, right? And so how did you kind of identify the features which you should be adding that would add the most amount of value? Yeah, well, the churn feedback that I just mentioned is a big one. I mean, the minute you have launched a subscription product, you can start gathering that churn feedback. So even if you've only got 10 customers, you know, not all of them are going to stick around. That's just the nature of uh, SaaS. And so you're going to get some feedback pretty quickly. And so the best thing you can do is start listening to that feedback super quickly. Um, yep. But it's important to balance talking to your happy customers as, as much as your unhappy customers as well, because um, you tend to... Um, you know, you want to optimize for those who are seeing value as well. And how can you give even more value? Because they're already showing signs of being really engaged and passionate, loyal users who will go and shout, shout your name from the, from the rooftops. And so how can you make them even more sticky, even more passionate as well? Um, mm -hmm. Build out to them. And to, to do that, you really just, you know, surveys, um, in-person interviews. Uh, and we do a mixture of, of both. Um, obviously, in-person qualitative interviews are not super scalable, but it is super important, especially if you're a product-driven growth company. Um, you know, one of the most important things you can do when you work on product is actually just spend time talking to your users, understanding like and observing, you know, what they're actually trying to do. Because a lot of times when you send out surveys, you know, you'll get these sort of stochastic bullet point answers that don't really give you much of the nuance between the lines, like who they are, what's their actual motivation and jobs to be done, and so. Um, but surveys are obviously really effective and efficient as well. You know, you can get 2,000 responses back overnight and have, um, you know, a, a slightly more significant uh, body of data. And so, yeah, I think those three qualitative sets of inputs as well as, <clears throat> um, in terms of feature development, I think those three qualitative sets of inputs are the most important you can um, be diving into really regularly. And you'll start to see trends emerge in that as you categorize them. Um, similar requests will come back again and again and again. And they... At the very least, they give you hypotheses with which to go and maybe talk to users and sort of tease out ideas as well. Um, you know, I think you'll rarely jump straight from, ah, user said they want this feature, let's just go and build it. Uh, that can often be a recipe for disaster and a, and a great way of sinking um, a lot of time, energy and resources into something that maybe uh, was something that's not representative of all of your users. So it's good to spend, um, obviously, a lot of time validating after you get these inputs, but start with the inputs. Yeah, sure. And so in the beginning, you had this, the pro option, the paid option, the Canva for work, and you needed to show people that they could upgrade, that there was these extra features, right? How did you identify those places to test, to say, oh, this is an area or that's an area? Yeah, it's a great question. I think you start with those features and build, you start with building those features for the pro user. And so... It, it, you sort of start with what is the right user experience here? What's the right UX in the product? Where does this feature actually make sense? 
um, where is it um, appropriately positioned in the user's sort of natural workflow. Like for Canva, if it's, uh, say, an editing feature, it'll be obviously in that editing workflow. If it's a sort of more like download, export, um, publish feature, it'll be in that sort of publish workflow. So you start with where, um, where makes the best product experience. And so when you then step back to the free tier, you, you leave it in the same place, really. Um, in most cases, you, um, you don't put it somewhere else. Um, and so you, uh, you have it in a sort of like, um, we with Canva, how we signal these is that we put a crown on them. So the Canva Pro sort of iconography uh, is associated with, with a crown. And so we put a crown on a lot of our paid features before out in the free state. And so users can kind of see the crown and go, oh, what's this? Click on it and we sort of tell them a little bit about the benefit of that feature and how they can be doing more. Hey, why don't you take a 30-day free trial? Um, no obligation to check it out and see if this feature in Canva Pro can help you do more. Um, mm -hmm. That's sort of how we approach it. That's that's fantastic. Um, in terms of like all of the potential ideas, in term, because I'm sure you have a lot. Like a second ago, you just said you could run a survey and then overnight you get 2,000 answers. I think that's that's kind of like a benefit of having the traffic that Canva does. I don't think every company can do that. Um, first of all, like, like I would get hooked on just doing a survey every single day to figure stuff out, right? And so how do you kind of balance all of the potential ideas? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we... Uh, I think some of the frameworks out there are pretty well known, especially amongst your listenership, Alex, like the, mm -hmm. the framework or the RICE framework. And, ICE is something that we go back to again and again, really, when we have a lot of, um, we do seasonal brainstorming sessions, we'll get the whole team together at least once a season, um, and often more than once a season with the sort of tighter like product team. And we'll just sort of reassess what have we learned in the last few months? Um, what are the new opportunities? What are the new company priorities? What are the new product bets that we've launched in the last few months that we need to maybe demonstrate some value of to our users to help Canva Pro grow? Uh, and we'll take all those sort of inputs and we'll do some brainstorming sessions and come up with a, a list of ideas. And really from there, yeah, we just use a standard framework like um, like ICE, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's the same as us, um, but you have a lot more traffic and a lot more opportunity <laughs> to run surveys. Um, well, how often like, like, are you like surveying kind of happy customers? Like, and at what point like, like in the journey is that happening? Because I know personally, People are happy to give you feedback when they're unhappy. Really, really happy, right? You know, well, they're happy to give you feedback when they're unhappy. That's a strange sentence. But, but, but like it's harder to get the happy people to give you the right feedback because they're happy. They don't have anything. Like they're busy and they're happy and it's working. And so how do you actually, you know, kind of get that information? Yeah, there's a number of research techniques. I think you can um, incentivize users to talk to you as well. Like, people often respond well to, hey, talk to us for a $50 Amazon gift card. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that, that's something we, we do um, from time to time, but not always. Um, we've definitely tried both approaches, just reaching out to people. Um, you'd be surprised. I think um, that, you know, if you have a, little, a critical mass of happy, engaged users, some are really happy to chat. Some are really happy to tell you why they love the product. There's a lot of goodwill there. Um, and then others um, are a bit harder to attract and you might have to incentivize them. We do try to like from time to time, just rotate around and make sure we're getting a kind of accurate cross section of our users. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that means, you know, getting the full spectrum of happy sort of 
um, meh and, uh, <laughs> and the unhappy as well and making sure that we're talking to lots of different users. And because Canva is a truly international product as well, we're trying now to also, um, obviously it's so easy to just fall back to like reaching out to local English speaking Australians mm -hmm. um, in and around Sydney. But obviously we have over 35 million monthly active users now uh, all around the world. And over 50% of our monthly active users are in non-English speaking countries. So wow. in more efforts now to reach out and do localized research in um, key markets for us, like Brazil, for example, would be one of them. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I would just be hooked on surveys if I had that many people on the site. I would just be like, all right, dude, relax on the surveys. We've got enough data right now, you know, so we know what we're going to start working on, you know, in terms of the next sprint, right? So, but yeah, like I would be hooked and I would just have to be held back somehow, you know? I went through a phase of that. I think when I first kicked off that Canva for Work team of just, I need to learn everything. And I think we were using a tool called Get Feedback. And these were when we were a bit smaller and we probably could get away with a bit more in terms of just lashing out, um, you know, surveys unsolicited. These days, obviously, with GDPR and our bigger profile, we have to um, follow a bit more rigor and make sure that we're going through a process where we, um, you know, don't email somebody who might have previously unsubscribed to our marketing. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so you have to follow a bit more of a, a process these days. So um, it keeps the trigger finger at bay. But yeah, definitely used to go wild on the surveys. <laughs> um, you spoke before about um, the growth loops. Could you just explain what that is like, and provide an example of one? Um, that is effective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think a really great example of one for Canva Pro um, and that sort of free to pay growth loop is uh, our premium content. Um, so every time a free user uses Canva, there's obviously a bunch of really great free content in Canva and we always try and make sure that the, the free product is adequately valuable and useful um, for everyone and so that people can design regardless of um, how much money they have in their pocket. Um, but one really strong benefit of Canva Pro is that big uh, library of content I, I mentioned earlier. Mm. Uh, so if you're a free user and you, you jump into a Canva product, you want to design um, a social media post for your, your bakery, you go online, you search um, bakery or cake or something like that, uh, we'll have a bunch of really great premium content. And so you can design your post, uh, put that content on there. And when you go to download it, we'll say, you know, this, this image costs $1 or you can get it for unlimited use plus 75 million other items for, uh, as part of a Canva Pro subscription. And so that growth loop there is every time somebody designs and uses a piece of content, they see that they can potentially get um, unlimited access to this piece of content plus all the rest of the content for one single Canva Pro monthly subscription price of uh, $12.95. And so that every time a free user comes into the product, they're presented with this decision of like, hey, you know, how much am I using Canva? How much am I spending on premium content? Wow, isn't Canva Pro, they do that maths in their head. And I think for so many of our users, the, the, the maths adds up that Canva Pro is just incredibly, incredibly valuable. And so that is um, something that's proven to be a really effective growth loop within our product. So having a product that has like unlimited um, like downloads was critical as part of the the growth loop, right? Like that was a core part of it. So what did you have just before that? You know, it was unlimited. Yeah, because look, there was Canva and then there was Canva Pro, but that actually had like, well, some parts that were unlimited and some parts that weren't unlimited. Um, like what kind of, yeah, like, like, yeah. like yeah, loops were happening then? 
Yeah, um, I, I think one thing that maybe Cam is a little bit unusual for is uh, we the free freemium tier is is a really strong um, way for us to achieve our mission of making design affordable and accessible. So as part of that, we don't restrict the free tier. And I think a lot of freemium businesses will have, um, you know, a usage limit or some really, you know, heavy friction at some point. Like I think if mm. you that, um, say Spotify, for example, you know, you get, you get an ad between every song, which, you know, if you use a product enough, you just want to get rid of that friction. <laughs> And, and in, in, I think in SaaS growth or freemium growth, that's sort of referred to as tactical friction. There's plenty yeah. of employees tactical friction there. Uh, in Canva, we've actively decided never to employ tactical friction. Like uh, some of that might be that we um, cap your monthly downloads at 100 designs or something like that, but we never wanted to go that route. And so uh, we had to you know, create a pro product that adds value rather than like just unlocks constricted value. Um, so with that little bit of context being said, what we have, one, one of the first ways we did that when we first launched Canva Pro was uh, people really, really care about when they're designing assets for their business, they care about their brand. And they care about the brand being consistent and high quality at all times. So we realized this early on through user research. And we launched a feature called Brandkit, which allows users to save their logos, fonts, colors, uh, and always have them on hand, uh, really prominent in the products so that they can quickly access them, quickly apply them to their designs and always, you know, keep things on brand and not kind of worry what shade of blue it was that they were, they were previously mm. using for their brand. Uh, and so that was a really high, highly valued uh, feature that we had previously. We also had um, our animator feature, which was um, our early attempt at allowing users to create GIFs and animated designs in Canva. And so a few years ago, that was pretty crude, but these days it's actually, it's a really awesome product. We've We've actually since launched our video product, um, allowing people to create videos inside of Canva as well. And so uh, along with that, the animations have hit a new level. And we've actually um, dropped a lot of that functionality down to a free tier because we want people to be able to do the same with video creation as, as static design creation. Uh, other features we had before the content was our magic resize feature as well. So that was a, a really, really valuable feature for social media marketers. Mm. Anybody who's ever tried to do social media marketing knows <laughs> the pain of you know, resizing dimensions for LinkedIn, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram, et cetera. And with the resize feature, you can design once, uh, choose the endpoints or the, the channels that you're going to distribute onto and click resize and abracadabra, it's, it's done. And that was another sort of really uh, big flagship feature that drove a lot of people to uh, Canva Pro. Yeah, I think, um, I think our design team internally is going to just want this now um, because I know how much time they do spend just resizing the same thing, LinkedIn, Facebook, you guys can and then all of the Google display banners and then everything like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Are you guys Canva, Canva users? Um, I, we, not on the pro, not <laughs> on the pro. But now through this conversation, we will be, that's for sure. But I also know that there's a basically enterprise as well, right? And so you've got pro, and then you have enterprise. What's the difference between the two? Uh, yeah, so enterprise really is our offering for larger businesses and larger teams who really care about um, empowering the workforce to design and giving them sort of all of the all of the things that Canva is famous for. You know, making design um, democratized across an organization while still giving them an element of being able to keep everything on brand. Mm -hmm. uh, and review and control um, what gets created. And so 
Uh, we launched that around um, about 12 months ago now. I think it's coming up on the one year uh, anniversary mm -hmm. of that launch. It's growing really well. Yeah, I think um, uh, what we're seeing, uh, where we're seeing people, uh, companies really, really uh, get the most out of it is, um, say, for example, like a franchise where they might have one head office that works on the, the, the brand identity and, and the marketing material, but they want to push that out to all their franchisees so that they can create sort of local posts. So think of a gym, for example, who might have that centralized gym branding, but might want to create their own uh, timetables, for example, or uh, these days their own posts for uh, Zoom workouts or whatever. <laughs> right. That HQ can give everybody on the team a Canva enterprise um, account and they can push out uh, pre-designed templates that have uh, a bunch of the content uh, locked down. Um, so logo, font, etc. Uh, all the stuff that you want to stay the same, but then give them creative license to customize some of the content within. So that timetable being a perfect example. And so, yeah, we, we originally seen that opportunity. Um, people were coming to us uh, again. It was just sort of listening to feedback. These big customers were coming to us and saying, hey, we love Canva for work, but hey, it's just, if we give this to a thousand people, we, we need to be able to see what's going on and we need to be able to maybe just um, help people to create good content. And so there was a huge opportunity there to build a product exactly for these users. So that's what we went off and did. Yeah, right. And so you have a lot of segments which you're now trying to go after, right? Like you got enterprise and then you've got pro, which has, I don't know like how many umpteenth kind of the segments. How do you experiment between the segments? You know, cause obviously, you know, there's going to be a certain kind of feature that's going to be better for a design professional. And there's like a separate one that is going to be better for the social media marketer, which is how kind of, that was the first time I had found Canva, which is like years ago now was like, Oh, there's a way that, that I can just make all my things across all the social. But I mean, like, how do you kind of experiment between segments to improve features and so on? Yeah, no, it's a really great question. And it's something that I think there's, there's, there's no right answer for um, or no one cookie cutter answer. It really depends on your business, your audience, who you're optimizing for. Uh, with Canva, we have, like, without getting too into the weeds, we obviously have sort of personas and a, and a sort of average customer profile for each of our products. And so when we're thinking about our feature roadmap or our product roadmap, and we see these obvious sort of premium feature improvements that we could add, we look at that and go, well, you know, is this something that can really add value to the solo professional, which is sort of, you know, um, often a, a Canva Pro customer, or is it something that can add value to um, a large enterprise where a thousand people are, are using the product? And if it's both, then it'll be a pro and enterprise feature. If it's something that's more of a, um, say that our brand control feature in enterprise, um, that is uh, the one I just mentioned where mm. um, the brand admin can build a bunch of templates for the business and propagate them out to a thousand people uh, and allow them to make some changes within the boundaries that they set. That's useless for a solo person because they decide what they want to create, right? And they're just, they're, they're operating by themselves. So that would just be an, an enterprise feature. Um, something like our uh, social media scheduler, for example, which we just shipped uh, our content planner. Uh, that's something that can add value to the individual, like the sort of solopreneur, uh, side hustler marketer, or people who are doing marketing inside of a larger organization. And so that's a feature that we've rolled out to uh, both tiers. And so that's kind of how we make mm -hmm. this really case by case, seeing what problems are we, are we solving and you know, does the sort of average persona for that product uh, have that problem? Because we also, one of the things that Canva 
really uh, has done well is simplifying, uh, simplifying, you know, the tools that went before it and uh, really boiling down complexity and trying to democratize and make it easy and accessible and not scary to jump in and create design. And so the easiest thing to do is to just keep adding features, like add a feature here, add a feature here, add a feature here, but then mm. you have like, you know, some other products that have four layers of ribbon bars and, you know, just scare your mother away um, mm. and looks at it. And so uh, that's sort of one of the ongoing products, um, like healthy tensions we have is like, how do we solve more use cases while keeping the product um, as simple as it's known for being? Yeah, right. Um, just quickly on the persona side of things, uh, so how long are the persona documents? But are they a couple of pages? Are they, you know, 15 pages? So how long are they? Just like, you know, just so we get uh, some context. Oh, uh, we tend to keep them pretty concise and brief. Um, you know, there's, there's always a short version and a long version. I think mm -hmm. uh, as we get bigger and build a bigger product org, one of the things we realize is that documentation needs to be concise and as punchy as possible to cut through because with a thousand people, you know, there's lots of people sending around lots of things that are useful for lots of people to know. And there's sort of 25 to 30 product managers at Canva now and um, many, many product teams. And so for these insights and research to cut through, it has to be concise. We try and keep those persona um, docs to be sort of one pagers where possible, but then there's always, you know, deeper reading. You can actually dive into the research that went into creating that persona and actually read the verbatim sort of text of interviews and stuff like that. And that's obviously the job of a product manager to find time to do as well uh, to really uh, build an intuition for who they're building for. That's great. That's great. Um, yeah. Like I just wanted just to check that cause I could be like, it's a 50 page document or it's like a one page document. But I like that. It's kind of like simplified version. So everyone can just get to it and get the information they need. And yeah. then they've got the context, you know, yeah, I think it's, it's horses for courses as well in terms of your organization and how deep your resources are. Like obviously you, you always want to go deep on, you know, almost everything you do, but research is one of those things that, um, I've found anyway in my career that, uh, it's almost one of the last roles that gets hired for as an organization scales. You know, you really have to have sort of deep pockets in your product and design org before you start to um, hire dedicated researchers. So what tends to happen up until then is everybody kind of wears that hat and they time, like they might spend a half a day, a fortnight doing a bit of research. So it's always scrappy. It's always just enough. But mm -hmm. to be honest, like often that's kind of, all you need um, in a lot of cases to get the signal, to make a decision or to push ahead. Um, and then, you know, when the time comes when you, you're in a luxurious enough position to hire dedicated research, that depth of research is obviously uh, super valuable then. Um, but yeah, it tends to be do as much as you can uh, with the time you have available. Yeah, like I like, um, I talk about it often, um, um, like customer research is like eating your vegetables right? It's like, it's good for you. It's healthy. It's going to make you just run longer and run faster. No one wants to do it, but if you do it, then everything else is easier. Right. And I kind of like to give that as the example, right? Like it's like the fun stuff is like, you know, let's basically, you know, basically kind of experiment on a feature. That's fun. Right. The vegetables is kind of understanding what the hell the person wants. Uh, do you know what? I, uh, I get it. Um, I really, I, I really enjoy research. I think the bit that nobody likes doing is like, Oh, how do we, the operational side of it, how do we find users to talk to? How do we email a hundred people and get like five responses and then book in calendar times and then some people don't show up and then type up all the notes afterwards uh, in the room chatting to a customer. 
that bit I absolutely love. The other bits are just so time consuming that it becomes prohibitively scary to even think about doing. And so um, I've found that people just shy away from it. But, you know, as a product person or a growth person, when you get in a room and just like spend 30 minutes with a customer, you just come out with your head bursting of ideas. You're just like, oh my God, I can't wait to get back to the, to the, to the ideas backlog and start dumping some of this stuff into it and thinking about how we can apply some of that. Um, I think a really great example um, of that is one of the biggest growth wins we had last year uh, in terms of trial conversion was just a simple copy update to our upgrade dialogues in the Canva Pro product. And the inspiration for that came from user research uh, our content designer, Amelia, uh, did with a few users. We just came away realizing that like, you know, what users are telling us um, they're signing up to Canva Pro for achieve, to achieve is maybe not reflected in the copy that we're using to sell the product to them. So just by, you know, sort of really understanding the way users are thinking and articulating their desires and repeating that back to them in the upgrade paths, they resonate so much more. They see themselves in it and it, and it, it lands so much more effectively. And we've seen like a pretty considerable large um, percentage increase in uh, trial conversion off the back of that one copy experiment that just came from 30 minute conversation with a user. Um, so super, super valuable. And it's funny, sometimes you spend all the time on kind of the product and the features and all that. And you forget sometimes it's like, wait, let's just explain this feature in a bit of a different way that talks to what they're thinking, not in terms of what the feature does. You know what I mean? And I think that part is super undervalued. Yeah. 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 As product people, we're just feature thinkers, right? I'm, I'm <laughs> By the time a feature hits the world, we, you know, we're so intimately familiar with it. We, you know, we call it by its feature name. But a user comes to your site, they don't, they barely know, you know, in Canva's case, a lot barely know what Canva is. And so, um, you know, we, uh, an example I think of this is we used to sort of say, you know, upgrade to Canva Pro for Magic Resize. But like, what, what the hell is Magic Resize? <laughs> oh, Magic Resize it sounds cool. What is it? Uh, and we kind of change that to, you know, magically resize your design to all uh, formats. And like, bang, yeah, they get oh, it. Well, that's the benefit. That's the, that's what I can achieve with your product. Great. Got it. And so that, yeah, just trying to get into that like way of thinking about the benefits you provide rather than the, the features you're shipping. A couple more questions like then we're done. Right. Um, and the first one is the volume of people that are on the site and the difference in point percent of this improvement right or basically adding a dollar to the pro price or taking a couple of dollars off or adding six cents on can have a massive impact in your success right like in terms of the revenue numbers how do you figure that stuff out you know because you've got the requirement for growth right because of the valuations but then you've also got kind of the value adding part of it, but then you've also got retention and churn and price does seem to be the kind of harshest example of that, right? Like point. So how do you figure that stuff out? I would price is probably always the last lemon you want to be squeezing. I think um, just because it's one of the, it's one of the things that challenges customer trust and faith in you the most. And it's also, very cumbersome to orchestrate a price change, communicate that, roll it out. Um, and so if you're in your early stages and you're scaling up, there, in reality, there's so much more you can be doing anyway to improve the quality of your product and improve all of the, the various uh, growth levers at each aspect of the funnel uh, throughout anyway before you ever need to um, start playing around with price. Um, really, if you're... 
I think if you're changing price um, early on in your journey, you, you, you probably your cart is about five miles ahead of the horse. <laughs> for Canva, for example, we've got a pretty standard premium SaaS funnel. We try and get people in the top of the funnel. That's our trial conversion to trial. Mm-hmm. Then we try and convert them from trial to paid through that 30 day trial. And then we focus on actively retaining them over time. And then we try to actively reduce uh, churn and churn, the sort of two big pillars of churn are voluntary churn and delinquent churn. Um, and so by setting up teams and roadmaps around each of those metrics, uh, and there's, there's a whole bunch of like other dimensions across them, like web versus mobile and international mm. markets versus like US markets, et cetera. But you know, at a high level, those, so if you set up teams and roadmaps around those four metrics, uh, and have a team just go to work on trying to like m- m- maniacally improve those metrics for three to six months. You'll make such you know such progress. And again, the beauty of SaaS: if you make a tiny like a small relative improvement on each of them, uh, as the product of those compounded together is actually huge. As you said, and as you mentioned, like at Canvas scale now, we, we see that even more and more. Like a 0.1 percent reduction in churn is obviously worth. Um, you know, quite a lot. And similar yeah. up at a funnel, like a 0.5% increase in trials is, is worth quite a lot. And so by um, the beauty of uh, when you get over that inflection point of scale is that uh, the ROI on putting, you know, two or three people just dedicated to that one metric is um, highly positive. And so you can easily justify sort of building out the team and having multiple growth teams. Um, but for a while, obviously, we were super lean. And it's only maybe really recently that in the past 12 months or so that we've started to sort of get over that inflection point where we're uh, willing to have multiple teams across each of those growth metrics. But I think, um, you know, for most startups that are, you know, maybe only a few, a few hundred people or less, um, it's perfectly fine and normal to have a single growth team and just um, prioritize and sort of, you know, move from metric to metric as uh, as the opportunities sort of guide you. And that's that's what we did at Canva for a long time before we sort of, uh, got to where we are now. Yeah, right. Um, I'm going to ask that question in a bit of a different way, just for the smaller companies out there, the smaller SaaS companies are listening. If you had to choose a price to start with <laughs> and you didn't have the market yet, but how would you figure it out? You know, like, cause it, this is the hardest one, right? Like they're saying, should I charge say $15 a month or 50 bucks a month? Like, is there a special kind of love? like range which you like to play within to say look at this point it's not too expensive that it's going to be kind of like always a consideration but it's not too cheap that we can't actually make money like if we scale it like is there like a range which you like to work within outside of the canva conversation you know yeah uh, it's so different from kind of company to company and uh industry to industry and audience to audience um i think you can build a range through talking to your users of what you think might be an acceptable range. Um, there's a lot of literature out here and a lot of ways to do pricing research. And we've um, employed some of them in the past, depending on how rigorous you want to be. Mm-hmm. If you just want to be super scrappy, like a way to do it is you probably have some intuition. You might have some competitors. You might have some um, uh, feedback already from users. You've kind of got that range. Say it's in your head, it's 30 to $50 a month. Um, by surveying all of your existing users, they'll you know, probably land in at the bottom of that range somewhere, like say $35. Uh, I, I believe an industry standard multiplier on top of what people uh, say they'll pay and what they'll actually pay when a push comes to shove is about 
uh, you multiply it by 1.3 or add 30 mm -hmm. because people will always say they want it cheaper than what they'll actually mm -hmm. So with that 30, $35 times add on 30%, that's probably where you could start. Um, but if you're early on, you know, I think it makes sense to index towards adding as much value as possible and giving away as much value as possible. So if you can live on the lower end of that range, mm -hmm. build a sustainable business, depending on if you're venture funded and you're happy to run at a loss or if you need to be profitable, you know, that's obviously very um, subjective depending on the business. Um, but that's, yeah, roughly how I would scrappily approach it. And then there's obviously more rigorous methodology um, to go into like Van Westendorp price sensitivity and all of that sort of stuff that, um, uh, you know, you can pay uh, pricing consultancy <laughs> half a million a year to do, or you can maybe do your homework yourself and try and, uh you know try and do a ghetto version yourself um <laughs> yeah cool how i would do it that's a good answer that's a good answer and the final question just before we go to the the um the quick fire questions uh, that i like to ask at the end what does the reporting look like there because you have so much data you have so many kind of inputs you have so many teams you know like specifically you know for your role yeah like but how does that look you know uh, we use a few different tools. Um, we've obviously invested heavily in a data warehouse, and I think most companies, when they get beyond a certain scale, realize the need to do that. I think, um, you know, you've probably seen it from uh, your time, even at Web Profit, Alex. Like, if you don't have data, it's really hard to do growth and marketing. Mm. So, uh, we've invested heavily in our, in our data warehouse. And then on top of that, we use a few tools like um, Amplitude, Mode, and Looker. Um, Amplitude is great for like sort of, you know, product user analytics, like getting in and sort of uh, seeing what users are doing at various touch points. Uh, Looker and Mode are sort of better for building out dashboards on top of SQL queries, the metrics that you care about and you want to check in on every day. Um, so they're the main tools we look at. For me personally, I, I have a bunch of health metrics that I care a lot about and I'll sort of check in on them um, a few times a week. You know, always on a Monday, I'll check in and just see how they're all doing, see how things are trending. Um, and they're sort of just regular health checks and other members of my team would do that as well. Um, we have a growth manager and so one of his responsibilities is to just, you know, make sure those metrics are always in a healthy place. Um, and then we have a data team within Canva Pro as well of a couple of data analysts to look after those metrics as well. So we then try to sort of report on them, um, analyze anything interesting and going back to your early point, like how do you make sure context and communication is swirling at those fortnightly show and tells, for example, the data team will present, like what's interesting in our data the last fortnight, which is a great way to raise that data literacy across the group. Um, because one thing you'll find is that uh, in a growth-minded group like ours, not everybody is working on growth. Some of the engineers are just working on the infrastructure. Some are working on product features. They're not necessarily caring about how to grow the product. But data literacy benefits everyone. And um, the best growth ideas come from you know a range of contributors and having everybody sort of literate in data has um, in something that we've put a strong emphasis on and it's definitely been really valuable for us. And um, yeah, and then I guess on a uh, company-wide basis, we'll have a bunch of company-wide metrics that we care about that are actively sort of monitored and reported on um, across a, a certain group of people who care about them, like how we're going on our MAU growth, how we're going on our revenue growth, how's our churn looking, um, and then some key spotlight areas as well. And the real time, I'm assuming. Uh, some of it is, some of it is you know, a few hours delayed based on okay. uh, warehouse run jobs and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But it's never more than, um, you know, a day, um, behind you. 
Sounds fun, man. It sounds really fun. It sounds like a fun place to be. It sounds like a fun experience to have. It sounds like the data. I mean, like I was just thinking a second ago, like the show and tell with the data people would be cool. I just want to know what cool stuff they've found, you know, because like, I love that stuff. It's pretty geeky, but like, it's really interesting what you can find in data. You know what I mean? So sounds really fun. Massively. So, and I think the interesting the thing that's really fun about Canva is we have users in, you know, over 190 countries, really, really broad spread of users from sort of consumer type users all the way up to business type users in every country and every economic bracket on every device. And so, um, you know, you could, you could get lost in that data for, for weeks and months mining for opportunities. But um, we try to stay focused on some key growth goals each season and really stay laser focused on moving the needle on them as well as sort of like looking a bit further afield as to what are the emerging opportunities and what is the data telling us around, you know, how can we um, get more subscribers in Brazil, for example, or how can we fix our uh, payment challenges in Mexico um, as another one and those types of things. So yeah, it's definitely um, interesting and, and um, a lot of different ways we can go, but I think focus and priorities is, is how we sort of rein that in and make sure that we're just um, executing on a season to season basis. Love it. Now some quick fire questions. Ooh. If you had to choose just one channel or tactic for growth, what would it be? Oh, it's got to be SEO, I think. Um, so SEO has sort of been the, the, the original growth channel that Canva took off on. And, yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah, and, and I think um, it's, it's obviously incredibly efficient. It's, it's super cheap. It allows you to invest your money and resources elsewhere. So if you're a product company like Canva, you want to build a great product while amplifying it through SEO, you can reinvest instead of spending all that money on Google ads, you can put it back into product development, which keeps that loop growing. So SEO for me. Another growth loop. That's great. Um, of course, what book has had the biggest impact on your success? Ooh, um, that's a good one. I think one I've read recently that I've really enjoyed is range by David Epstein. Um, really good. Uh, I think, teardown of the 10,000 hour rule fallacy and how that basically is useless in the modern world. The people who succeed in um, by, you know, just narrowing in on one field of expertise. Uh, it, it only tends to work in things like golf and in the modern work world when you're trying to build a business and pretty much everything you solve on a daily basis has no precedent. You're actually better off having a wide breadth of experiences and really trying to challenge yourself to constantly solve a breadth of problems. And there's loads of, it's really well written and there's loads of really great anecdotes in there as well about um, people who've uh, sort of gone through, uh, you know, relevant challenges and how they've had success based on their uh, breadth of experience. So that's one that stuck with me recently. That's a good one. Cause I, yeah, I mean the, the 10,000 hour rule thing like I do remember, but that sounds like a super interesting book, which I'm definitely going to get. Um, what's your number one piece of advice for hiring awesome people, which you've had to do obviously in the last three years. Yeah. Um, I think first and foremost, trying to find people who have a proven track record of just like being high achievers and achieving good results and getting shit done. I think, um, you definitely want people who just are motivated by solving problems because that's all building a business and building a startup is. It's solving one problem and challenge after another and moving on to the next one. And uh, it, yeah, you want to find people who are good at doing that and are motivated by doing that. And, and I think finally, like just good humans as well. Uh, you're going to mm. spend 40 hours a week with someone for the next few years. You want to make sure that um, they're a nice person and that everybody in your team will enjoy spending time with them. So they're probably my three areas I look for. Yeah, great. Um, Cool. How do you relax after a crazy day in the office? The home office now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I usually tend to do a bit of exercise after work just as a sort of, you know, that's one hour where my head is just on something else and it gives you time to sort of, you know, cool down, as you said. And um, so usually the gym after work or sometimes a run and then, yeah, get home, have dinner with my partner, catch up with her, hear hear how her day was and Mm -hmm. spend the time with her. And then she's a bit of an early bird. So usually she goes to bed and I'll read a book for an hour or so. Um, Yeah, that's it. Yeah, cool. That's good. Ideally. Your best time management or productivity tip oh lists 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 um just making lots of to-do lists and sort of constantly revisiting them and documenting everything i think uh one thing i'd absolutely crumble without is just starting the day with five or ten minutes of reviewing priorities triaging the backlog and things like what am i going to try and achieve today uh what do i have to do and what goes to the later list and then just coming back to that at the end of the day like what's come onto my radar today what have i got done and just keeping that up to date and organized and revisiting every day and um yeah lists (laughs) love it um a couple more questions left um the second last one the best piece of business advice that you've ever received Ooh, um, I think just try to give away as much value as you possibly can to users. I think a lot of businesses get so hung up on short-term, like, yak shaving. Um, they lose sight of that bigger picture. That This is one thing I think I've learned a lot from Melanie and Cliff at Canva is, you know, you're building a business for five to ten years, not the next quarterly results. And so you squeeze that extra bit of revenue added on a user. You don't give them the best experience. They don't come back. Whereas if, you know, you can just give away a little bit more value than you think you can, you know, you're going to build, you're going to be doing a little bit more than your competitor and you're going to be building a loyal set of users who are going to come back. They're going to tell their friends. They're going to be your greatest evangelists. So, yeah, just over-index on giving away a little bit more value than maybe feels comfortable to. That's awesome. Uh, and that's probably the theme of this whole podcast, actually, um, which is great. And the last one is what do you do for fun? Um, just fun, you know, just to enjoy yourself, you know. Fun, not work-related. Uh, I've recently been trying to learn to surf. I'm so bad at it, but I'm really enjoying it. Uh, oh, sorry, what what? Surf? Surf, yeah, yeah. I'm, so I've always been, you know, a fan of the water. I've always loved snorkeling and scuba diving and stuff like that and like splashing around. But uh, yeah, at, at 31, I've just found surfing and it's I'm hilariously bad at it. But, you know, even if you go out and you don't catch a wave, you still just splash around in the water for an hour and nobody ever regrets a swim. So you're still having a good time. Yeah, I tried to learn to surf some time ago after I kind of had learned how to snowboard. I was like, I can snowboard, I can surf. (laughs) No, because the ocean's very, very different and I had the wrong board and all this stuff. And I tried every day for a month, almost died twice. And I was like, at the end of it, I stopped. Then about 10 years later, I just got like a lesson. And in about 20 minutes, I stood up and I was like, Gotta pay experts to just show you the way in. I was yeah. like, why didn't I think of that before? Yeah, um, super meditative. It's like you're super- in the water and you got to focus on not not drowning, and so you <laughs> can't really think of much else. And so, yeah, it's a great way to unwind too. Um, for the people that are listening, especially for um, the companies out there and the people that lead teams, um, like, what's the way in for Canva Pro? You know, what's like a way that they can start to think about? Hey, you know. Like I should be using it, you know, just for this part or for that part. Like, like, is it that like just to sign up for the trial and see how it goes? Is it to pass it to their team? Just what would you like them to do? Like, like if there was, you know, a specific action that like you'd like them to take. Oh, thanks for asking Alex. Uh, Check out, it's a free, no obligation, 30 day trial of the product. I mean, if you're a business that, 
does any form of digital marketing, you need to create visual assets, even for internal communications. If you need to create videos, presentations, logos, business cards, we have a print product now. So if you need to print business cards, if you need to print t-shirts, you need to do any of those things. Um, Canva can probably uh, help you out a lot. And the Canva Pro product has a range of those features I've mentioned throughout the interview that um, can help you do even more. And it is a relatively affordable product. I think for any professional out there as well, it's $12.99 a month US. Uh, and so, you know, it's a couple of, couple of coffees and if it can, um, you know, take a few hours, uh, give you a few hours back each month, it's probably worth checking out. Yeah, and I know that there's gonna be quite a lot of people on this podcast that are a bit older um, that have heard of Canva from 2014, 15, which is the time I'd heard about it. And I hadn't heard about all of the features until kind of this podcast really. And so now that I've heard everything, I'm definitely signing up and I'm gonna get the, um, the design team on it as well. And so I think, that this has been like, like a good kind of like update to the people that had known of kind of like older Canva and kind of like all the feature updates, which I just wasn't even across, but now it's super exciting and it sounds super cheap as well compared to all the other software subscriptions that we have for stock photos <laughs> and for other things. So that's a fantastic, um, like I'm excited about it anyway. And it's something I'm absolutely going to be doing straight after like we hang up on this podcast, right? Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, this has been such a good chat and it's been so nice um, to see some of the, or to hear about some of the inner workings of Canva. Uh, thanks so much uh, for being so open um, yeah. today, Dave. Uh, it's no been a fantastic chat, mate. No problem, Alex. And thanks for having me. Really enjoyed chatting to you today. I'll speak to you soon, man. See you, mate. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Growth Manifesto podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. For more episodes, please visit growthmanifesto.com forward slash podcast. And if you need help driving growth for your company, please get in touch with us at webprofits.io.